Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with your host, Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about lung cancer pathology with Dr. Robert Homer. Dr. Homer is a professor of pathology and director of thoracic pathology at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. So, Dr. Homer, maybe we can start off by you telling us a little bit about yourself and what exactly you do. So I've come to New Haven in 1979 to be part of the Yale MD-PhD program. I did a PhD in immunology, did a residency in anatomic pathology, and then subsequently I sort of risen through the ranks, eventually becoming a professor in 2009. So anatomic pathology is an area that I'm not sure a lot of people in the community are familiar with. It is a branch of medicine. So pathologists are those people who've gone to medical school, we have medical training, um, but we've then specialized really in looking um, more on the diagnostic end rather than on you know, the, the immediate clinical care of patients. Uh, one, one way to say it is that we care so much about our patients, we want to make sure everybody has the right diagnosis. Um, in my particular case, uh, the area of pathology that I'm in, which is, which is pathology is a very broad field, but the area which I specialize in predominantly involves looking at um, histologic sections of lung tissue um, in order to understand what's going on with the patient. Um, we do uh, review radiographs. I look at uh, x-rays, uh, CT scans, and, and PET scans, and other radiologic imaging routinely. Um, I look at other clinical information that's available in patients. Uh, but at the end of the day, um, the particular skills that I bring is understanding uh, the histopathology of a variety of diseases involving the lung, in particular lung cancer, but not only lung cancer. So, you know, we've talked on the show previously about, um, about lung cancer and the fact that almost universally for most cancers, um, really everything starts with the pathologist. Everything starts with the biopsy. So can you tell us a little bit about the different kinds of biopsy there are, um, the, the advantages and disadvantages, and how that impacts you as a pathologist? Uh, Thanks. That's a great question. So uh, it is certainly true that for some tumors, uh, there are a variety of ways of getting a diagnosis. But for lung cancer in particular, as you say, uh, histopathology really is still um, is a central element of uh, the diagnostic process. Um, the kinds of biopsies one can obtain range from um, getting a uh, what's called a cytology or a smear of cells. And those cells can be obtained in a number of different ways. Um, if a patient happens to have a uh, what's thought to be a possible metastasis in another site, you could put a, a needle in, maybe even through the skin, like into a, a lymph node around the neck or, or under the arms, and just obtain a smear and aspirate, just put a needle in with a syringe on it, uh, put a little suction on it, uh, get a few cells into the uh, chamber, and then smear them onto a slide uh, and stained and looked at it. And historically, that was really the major way in which a lot of lung cancer diagnoses were made. And there was a very simple classification that, that we used, what's called non-small cell and small cell carcinoma. And by and large, um, that very simple technique of just putting smear cells on the slide 
was adequate for that. And we still use uh, things along those lines. Uh, it might involve, as I said, uh, putting a needle into the skin, into some very superficial part of the body, like I said, a lymph node or a lymph node under the arm or around the neck. But it might also involve uh, a, a medical procedure where they put a bronchoscope uh, down the patient into the lungs and just do a washing where you put in fluid and then you aspirate the fluid out. And then again, you take that fluid and you smear it on a slide. Or if you have fluid around the lungs, they might take some of that fluid and again, smear it on a slide. Those are all ways in which, again, you can use the vast majority of cases can make a diagnosis. As one might imagine, um, the sensitivity of that is going to depend on a lot of factors, um, the amount of tissue you obtain, the kind of tumor it is, if it is in fact a tumor, uh, what else is going on with the patient. Um, and so those are all, you know, historically the sort of the classic ways in which we did it. More recently, I have to say that the um, we're much more, uh, we get more information out of what's called uh, the histopathology of tumors, whereas uh, if you take that same smell cell smear uh, and then you can uh, prepare it such that you can make a pellet of cells. You make take those cells, you spin them down, you make a collection of cells. You then actually can take a uh, fix those cells in a fixative uh, and process them as if they were a regular uh, tissue biopsy, and then two sections of it, and then you'll have cells that you can actually look at uh, in a diff slightly different way. The advantage of that method is a couple of things. One is you can start looking at uh, so-called immunostains. That is, uh, we take antibodies against cellular components, we apply them to the tissue stain, to the tissue section, and then we sort of see which elements of the cells are present. And different cells will be able to stain in different, in different patterns. And a large part of my job has to do with understanding the exact patterns from different kinds of stains that are used. Again, they have different degrees of sensitivity. That is, you know, are they true positive if it stains? Or if it's negative, is that really a negative? And how, you know, and that's a large part of my job has to understanding just how good that process is in understanding it. In addition to staining, um, again, these kind of small samples where you take a smear and you can make a cell, so-called cell block out of them, um, you can also do biopsies of various types. Uh, one biopsy technique is, to, again, to take a... Uh, uh, bronchoscope, which goes into the patient's lungs, and the bronchoscopist would then maneuver it down into the lungs where he then takes a small piece of tissue using a biopsy forceps. And there's a variety of tissues they can get this way. They can get some lung tissue itself, but they also they're extremely good at getting uh, using that technique to get lymph nodes within the chest, which gives you a sense of whether the tumor has spread or not spread to adjacent lymph nodes. And this is critical for understanding uh, therapeutic uh, approaches. Alternatively, sometimes the tumor or this, the lesion, of, the suspicious lesion, is in the very uh, periphery of the lung, near the chest wall. And sometimes you'll then have a go to CT scan, um, and then you can have someone who can put a needle through the skin into the lung that way. So, And then, of course, people who have, unfortunately, more advanced disease where they might have uh, a lesion somewhere in the liver or in bones, um, those can be biopsied again by uh, usually by CT scan or by ult under ultrasound guidance and obtain piece of tissue, which then again is submitted for routine histology. Finally, not very commonly, but occasionally, 
we'll have cases where um, there might be a surgical intervention where you're really not sure what the lesion is. And it might be small, it might be difficult to obtain. And the one way you're absolutely certain to obtain the tissue that's diagnostic is to surgically resect it, even without a specific diagnosis. Because if you go through the appropriate workup from their clinicians who really think, look, we really think this is probably a cancer, and the only way we can know for sure is to really take it out and really show the entire thing to a pathologist. Um, the problem, one of the problems in lung pathology is that um, lung cancers or lung tumors commonly have areas where there's a lot of scarring and a lot of inflammation. And if you get a biopsy which only shows that, you're never completely sure that you haven't missed an actual cancer. And so, again, with the appropriate workup and with really careful thinking and with discussion with the patient, you might go ahead and actually uh, surgically remove a nodule entirely and then send it to uh, pathology. At that point, there's really two choices. You can either send it to what's called the frozen section area, where we have people who are standby you know, all the time, and we'll take those and get make a rapid section out of that. And you can do that by literally freezing the tissue and then cutting sections on specially equipped uh, machines called cryotomes, which can make sections which the pathologist can look at within a few minutes of the specimen arriving in pathology. The pathologist looks at that and very quickly makes a decision, does this look like a cancer or does this look like something else? Um, and those are, you know, those, those, that kind of analysis is extremely accurate. I just recently looked at um, our Yale's institution's experience. And you know, in almost all cases, it's not perfect. There are certainly examples where it's not completely accurate, but by and large, it's a very, very accurate technique. And you can tell immediately uh, whether it is in fact a cancer. Alternatively, sometimes people will simply take that tissue and submit it for so-called permanent section, whereas where we process it, um, as we would any other specimen, where we fix it in fixative, we then section it, we then submit it for routine histology, and that usually takes overnight. Um, if the tissue is small enough, we might be able to do it the same day, but usually we do it overnight. And again, we look at it the next day. And in all these cases, again, we're very commonly would be using uh, as I said, these stains we can use to highlight specific molecular features of the tumor in order to understand exactly what it is and characterize it a little bit better. So there are a whole variety, as you as you alluded to, of types of biopsies and uh, types of techniques of looking at this, these tissues to come to a diagnosis. I think a few questions come to mind. The first is when you're looking at these tiny cells. You know, when you talked about putting a needle into something and aspirating a few cells, I'm, I'm sure that people wonder, how easy is it for you to tell that is a cancer cell versus not a cancer cell or a non-small cell cancer cell versus a small cell cancer cell? How, how sure are you when you make that diagnosis of the diagnosis that you make, especially when it's just a few cells? Well, I think I agree that this is really part of the training. I think we've all, you know, one of the things that uh, pathology involves is really a lot of, of hands-on experience. Um, that's number one. Number two, we are very sensitive to the notion that we don't want to, you know, call something a cancer that's not cancer. And so, again, as part of the training, we learn very carefully 
that there's a minimum number of cells you really need in order to make a specific diagnosis. Um, and there's no you know, magic number in terms of exactly how many cells that is, but I, you know, one cell is certainly not going to be enough. Um, and you know, is 100 cells necessary? We certainly get down into maybe you know, 100 cells or maybe in some cases fewer, but largely we're very sensitive to the notion. We really want to see a population of cells that are really clearly uh, represent a malignancy. And the other thing we do is, particularly on the smaller samples, we commonly, uh, you know, pathologists will commonly show things to each other. Uh, we're totally, you know, there's no sense of, you know, ego involved. We show each other things. What do you think? What do you think? Is this enough? And we generally, anything where there's even a marginal call, we show things to each other and we document that we've shown it to somebody else who agrees with us. Um, so that's really sort of intrinsically baked into our process. And I think that the, you know, if you actually were to go and look at the literature, you'd say that the based on, um, you know, if summaries, people have done this in pathology extensively, whereas you ask and you go back and you look at other people's diagnoses, how often are you correct? And, you know, I can't say everything is perfect. There's nothing in life which is completely perfect, but by and large, um, it's extremely good. Um, and so I think that, you know, if there's really any doubt, you know, patients can always ask to send it to another institution. I don't recall a case at Yale where, you know, we've had um, a change diagnosis along those lines. Certainly people can have other opinions um, exactly how to classify a tumor, but by and large, um, we uh, are very careful to try to prevent anything where that's really an issue. Terrific. Well, we're going to learn a lot more about lung cancer pathology right after we take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about lung cancer pathology with my guest, Dr. Robert Homer. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers comes from Smilo Cancer Hospital, where the Breast Cancer Prevention Clinic provides comprehensive risk assessment, education, and screening for women at increased risk of breast cancer. To learn more, visit YaleCancerCenter.org genetics. The American Cancer Society estimates that over 200,000 cases of melanoma will be diagnosed in the United States this year, with over 1,000 patients in Connecticut alone. While melanoma accounts for only about 1% of skin cancer cases, it causes the most skin cancer deaths, but when detected early, it is easily treated and highly curable. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center and at Smilo Cancer Hospital, to test innovative new treatments for melanoma. The goal of the Specialized Programs of Research Excellence in Skin Cancer grant is to better understand the biology of skin cancer with a focus on discovering targets that will lead to improved diagnosis and treatment. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org you're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Robert Homer. We're learning more about lung cancer pathology. And Dr. Homer, right before the break, you were talking about the fact that there's a lot of training that goes into being a pathologist, and that's really important because you know, you really need to be able to recognize the difference between a cancer cell and a non-cancer cell uh, when making that diagnosis. And when you have questions or concerns, uh, do you have enough of a sample? Or you, it's kind of a borderline call. There's really no uh, issue in terms of 
seeking another opinion. And you as pathologists do that a lot. You'll show that to other pathologists. So one question that people who are listening might ask is, you know, should patients, when given a lung cancer diagnosis, seek a second opinion with regards to their pathology um, at another institution if they're not sure? And because how can a patient really be sure, aside from the fact that most of us have a lot of confidence in the institutions that we frequent? Uh, I think that anytime, if there's a patient that's really unsure, um, you know, I'm you know, I sort of think about this in medicine. I think this is sort of a general question about any medical advice. So a pathology report is is medical advice. Um, I think that if you see an oncologist and aren't sure about the advice you give, you should be free to seek another opinion. If you seek a surgeon and get different advice you want and you're not happy with it or you're concerned and you want to make sure that you've seen it, you can get a second opinion. I don't think that pathology diagnosis are any different. I think you would put it in the same category as any other medical opinion um, and, you know, if there's really any, any concern, I think that that's a fine thing to do. And so, you know, I think one of the big distinctions is cancer versus no cancer. And one of the things that you mentioned before the break was that you're really very careful about calling cancer versus not cancer. Um, and so, tell us a little bit more about the nuances. You mentioned that, you know, there's classifications in terms of small cell and non-small cell. How do you make that distinction and why is it important or is it important to patients' treatment? So the historical uh, distinction between so-called small cell and non-small cell carcinoma really goes back uh, to the 1960s and 70s, where it was understood that the vast majority of people with what's so-called small cell carcinoma uh, were most likely had a systemic disease on presentation, uh, and they responded to certain types of chemotherapy that patients with so-called non-small cell carcinoma did not. Um, and that's really sort of become sort of a founding principle of the field of thoracic oncology uh, for a long time. Um, we certainly at the, you know, back in the 60s and 70s, we didn't have really any ancillary, so-called ancillary techniques like immunostains or molecular diagnostics. Um, and so that was really just based on the morphologic appearance of the cell with a few relatively, by our current standards, crude stains. Um, these days, it's really pretty clear that you can improve the uh, reproducibility of the diagnosis by getting some stains. There's uh, one particular paper that I use routinely uh, that's an international, that showed that an international consensus of difficult cases, cases that people agreed were not straightforward, could be improved by using immunostains. And I also uh, think that these days with molecular diagnostics being as advanced as it is, there are very rare cases where that can be helped. It's clear that, again, so-called small cell carcinoma has a very distinct molecular signature, whereas tumors of uh, so-called non-small cell have a range of other signatures, uh, which really would not be expected to be seen in that. So I think that there is... Um, you know, the basic diagnosis is certainly suggested by uh, just routine histology. Um, and there's clearly cell, clearly tumors which are just not small cell. If you just look at them and say, there's, yeah, that's just not what it is. Um, you know, I don't really care about any of the other markers that are present. Um, and there's other tumors where you say, you know, I'm just not sure. Um, those are relatively, you know, maybe 5% of cases where 
people sort of have that thing. But of course, you know, in any larger cancer center, you know, like Yale or other large cancer centers, we see enough cancers that they sh- that show up, you know, all the time. Um, so um, we do have a sort of a, a you know a standard of protocol for uh, for resolving that. Um, in terms of non-small cell carcinomas, we know that there is really um, two major subtypes within that: uh, so-called adenocarcinoma and squamous cell carcinoma. And there's excellent markers that distinguish those two things from each other. Um, we know that there's a large percentage of those cases which might be surgically resectable. We also know that all of the uh, you know oncology protocols for patients who do not have resectable tumors. Um, that's sort of like the first thing pretty much in all the protocols is to understand which of those two pathways it is, it's in. Uh, pretty much all the molecular workup after that depends on that fundamental distinction. Um, and a lot of the therapeutic des- decisions are based on that as well, not entirely, but largely. Um, we have excellent markers to distinguish those two things these days. And um, all t- lung tumors that have enough tissue uh, to evaluate uh, would most likely get one of those, unless it's, again, histologically, you know, quite straightforward. And so that's really important because it, it influences the type of treatment that, that patients get. Is that right? It, dis- it distinguishes, it influences the treatment they get, but also to a certain extent, the workup. Um, if you have somebody with um, a, what seems to be a, like a localized, they're rarely, again, you have cases which are, look like a localized uh, small cell. Uh, the oncologist might try much harder to really convince himself or herself that that's really a truly localized tumor because the likelihood that they're probably missing something. So they might do a more extensive workup than they might otherwise. Um, And it's also true that a lot of our patients have uh, more than one tumor, unfortunately. And so a lot of, a lot of, uh, much of what I do, you know, as director of thoracic oncology is uh, pathology rather, is to really look at patients who have more than one tumor and really convince yourself that what you're seeing is which of those, you know, is this really a primary lung tumor or is this really coming from somewhere else? Um, And so understanding that distinction is important uh, in order to help with that decision-making process as well. Yeah. You know, you mentioned molecular diagnostics a few times, and I want to dive a little bit more into that. On this show, we've talked about personalized medicine and targeted therapies. Um, the idea that these days um, pathologists can, you know, look at these tumors in a variety of ways to kind of unlock the genomic signatures of them, identify whether they express pr- certain receptors or certain proteins that then are targetable um, with certain drugs. How common is that done? Is, should should patients be going to their medical oncologists asking about, you know, whether they have a, a BRAF mutation or a VEGF mutation or that kind of thing? Well, the good news is that there are uh, quite a number of consensus statements on which tumors are really the appropriate ones to do the molecular testing on. Uh, there are a variety of professional societies, which include both pathology and oncology, which have really very, you know, very explicitly uh, stated um, who should get this kind of profiling. Um, so, for example... As I mentioned, the distinction between adenocarcinoma and squamous cell carcinoma is really critical. And it's really quite clear that um, the, the guidelines all recommend that anyone with an adenocarcinoma should absolutely have a molecular profiling. Um, that's really, and at Yale, I'd say that 100%, anyone with adequate tissue will have that done. Um, 
I should also point out the fact that even though we like to think of this as a tissue-based uh, process, there's now also the options uh, to get some of that molecular profiling done just by a blood test. Um, it is not as sensitive as getting an adequate piece of tissue, but if it's you know if it detects an appropriate uh, genetic abnormality, then it can be. I think it, we're all pretty comfortable that we can rely on it. Um, on the other hand, as I said, uh, having an adequate piece of tissue to do that is still considered the the gold standard. Patients with squamous cell carcinoma, um, unless with with relatively few exceptions, uh, are not thought to benefit from uh, sequencing. Again, there are a few, there are a few exceptions, and because there are a few exceptions, some oncologists do would like to see their uh, lung cancers from these patients sequenced as well. Um, but that's a much uh, that's more of a very specific decision that needs to be done uh, individually. I think now, and I should also point out the fact that from my perspective, even though uh, we like to talk about molecular diagnostics as being particularly important for uh, specific therapeutic decisions, so do I have a mutation in a gene where there's a specific drug that targets that specific mutation, which is great when, when we have, have it. It's also true that from my perspective, sometimes that blocked profiling can be very useful to decide whether something is in fact a, a lung cancer or from somewhere else, or it's actually fairly common to have patients who have had a lung cancer to then have a second uh, lung cancer. And sometimes we use it to distinguish whether is this really the same tumor which has recurred or is this really a new tumor. And again, there may be therapeutic implications from that depending on the specific patient uh, circumstance. So it sounds like, you know, these decisions are are really critical and, um, or can be. Um, now, you mentioned that with frozen section, you can make a diagnosis in minutes. But in terms of getting all of the information, you know, small cell versus non-small cell, adeno versus squamous, the molecular profiling, how long does that take? So um, the uh, adeno versus squamous distinction, uh, so frequently that, you know, that depends on the specifics of the tumor. It's pretty common in a tumor which is so-called well or moderately differentiated, that is still has histologic evidence that is producing these particular histologic features, you can tell it just at the time of frozen section and be pretty comfortable with that. Uh, there are other tumors where it's a very undifferentiated tumor. It really does not, the histology, the root, just looking at it doesn't really tell you very much. Then you need to do stains. Um, you know, it depends on, uh, you know, that could be a day or two. Uh, it might be your stains aren't terribly helpful. You might do a second round. Um, so that might be a, a few days. Um, and then the molecular uh, work, uh, which includes uh, one marker, which helps to, uh, determine how uh, available you are or how effective uh, immunotherapy is likely to be, which is called PDL1 stain. That should be done within a, another few days or a week. And then the molecular profiling, again, should be done. There's, again, national standards for that should be done within two weeks. So it can take up to two weeks to get, uh, you know, kind of a thorough pathologic workup of your cancer. Is that is that about accurate? I think that for lung cancer, I think that's where we are. Um, the, the peripheral blood testing, if it shows something, might be a few days before that, but it's not going to be, a, you know, it's not going to be just a few days. It might be 10 days instead of two weeks, but it, that seems to be where we are at the moment. Yeah. The reason I bring it up is because, you know, when patients and people hear that you can make a diagnosis in minutes with frozen section, 
they often will then go to their clinician saying, why is it taking so long to get the pathology back on my lung cancer? Um, can we get started with treatment? Um, so I think that you've kind of elucidated why it takes so long. And I, I personally have a maxim that says never rush the pathologist. Their opinion is too important. Um, I appreciate that. We all, um, you know, we want to get it right. Um, we all, I think in pathology, we're all really very aware that somebody is waiting for these diagnoses. You know, we're not, um, you know, I, I always personally have a feeling that, you know, should, you know, should do, you should be accurate, but you should also be fast. And I think that that they're, they're both important. You know, nobody's going to cut corners. On the other hand, nobody wants to just, um, you know, uh, slow walk the, the diagnosis out the door. Yeah. So in, in our last minute or two, um, maybe you can tell us what's on the horizon in thoracic pathology. What do we have to look forward to? That's a great question. Um, I think one of the things uh, going forward is really a better understanding of exactly how the, the immune system works. Um, I believe you've had people on here who've talked about immunotherapy for cancer. Uh, 